0: Well, thanks, uh, Doug and um, Sam and the worship team. Uh, It's great to come and worship. That's why we're here, to worship God and to uh, encourage one another and to say, in effect, I'm here because God loves me. I love God and I love to be loved by God and uh, be shown the love uh, through The love that we have for one another. And it's not just the quantity of love, as Sam was saying, Dan was saying, it's the quality of love. And um, indeed, um, we miss those that aren't here this morning. My wife looks forward to coming back um, on two feet. And uh, um, yeah, so she's missing that. I've been doing, as uh, some of you, may maybe not, were here um, some time back, a, a mini-series. Um, Todd's doing a series in John. I've been doing a little mini-series on defending the faith from Acts. So this is the third and final sermon in this little series. And what we see here is three different responses to being called to give an account for the hope that's in um, Stephen and then Paul. And I want to issue a little challenge. Uh, Yes, they are different, but there's something that is the same in all three. So we're called to defend the faith, each one of us, and uh, hopefully we're drawing something out of, as we read through Acts, um, each time uh, an apostle or Well, one of the believers stands up and is called to defend his faith, and um, it's about telling people why we believe what we believe. What's the difference between apologetics, as uh, that is really the study of defending the faith, or just plain witnessing, which Jesus called us all to do, uh, make disciples of all nations? I think there's very little between those two, apologetics and evangelism. Um, one's sort of perhaps more on the why and the other one's more on the what, but um, they sort of merge together. And there is a truth that if every Christian witnessed or shared their faith or defended the faith before uh, others uh, and brought someone to that same believing faith, Uh, In one year, then the whole world, whatever it is, six billion people, whatever it is, would be converted. That's something to think about. That's a real challenge. But first of all, we're going to read um, the text, which comes from Acts chapter 17, verse 16 to 34. And Nev is going to bring that to us. Thanks, Nev. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word, how it instructs us. It corrects us, it trains us in the ways of righteousness that we may be pleasing in your sight. Help us to understand um, something from this text today that we may take away from here and indeed uh, live lives pleasing to you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we see it happen all through the accounts of Acts uh, in the different speeches and sermons. The Acts of the Apostles, it's called. It's actually the Acts of the Holy Spirit working in people and changing people. And let me just uh, quickly review those uh, other couple of sermons that we've looked at. Acts chapter 7, the sermon or the speech of Stephen before the uh, ruling council, the Jews, and they uh, accused him of blasphemy. And so Stephen, in a fairly long discourse, as recorded by Luke there in Acts chapter 7, uh, gives a selected summary of Israel's history. And uh, his charge actually thrown back at them, he says, well, you're the ones who are refusing God. Your hearts are hard. And you need, you've been rejecting God's direction, which Moses pointed out and David pointed out, of the fact that the Messiah has come and his name is Jesus and he reigns, he lives, uh, seated in heaven. Now that uh, recording by Luke was about 1,400 words. It's quite a long uh, sort of a whole chapter. And then in Acts 26, Paul, before... Um, King Agrippa and his uh, accomplice, Benice, and also before Festus, the ruling Roman governor, and a number of others, Jews and Gentiles, uh, was called to give an account of why he'd caused a stir. And the charges, again, uh, similar to Stephen's, was that he'd defiled the temple. And, of course, through uh, the politics, the Roman politics, and also behind it, God uh, as God's will was, he remained in jail. But Paul, in his defence, gives his own story of how he came to the faith. In fact, he'd been persecuting the Christians and that had completely turned around. And he then levelled uh, the charge, as it were, against um, those who were listening against Agrippa and Festus and Benice. Uh, they were rejecting the facts and the message from the prophets about forgiveness of sins and living a righteous life before God. And the question there in Acts 26 was, do you think it's so incredible that God could raise someone from the dead? Uh, And here am I. I've witnessed and, in fact, met the risen Jesus Christ. Uh, That uh, speech was about half of Stephen's speech, about 700 uh, direct words of speech recorded for us. And now here in Acts 17 is another speech. It's not that Paul was uh, in chains or uh, there was a charge level against him, but his heart was so provoked by the idolatry in Athens uh, and the people wanted to hear more that they took him to the Areopagus. Now the Areopagus was actually a court, Uh, going in past centuries in fact that was a place where they condemned Socrates Uh, Paul was not formally on trial but informally asked to give an account for what he was saying and this account is again half of what Paul's account was in Acts 26 about 280 words of direct speech that Luke records for us now I ask the question, they're all different audiences, they're all different ways of uh, bringing out um, the fact. But what is the same in all of these three accounts? In fact, the same in all the uh, sharing uh, of faith. Well, it's telling of the resurrection of Jesus. It's actually applying the gospel to hearers' lives. And in... In this account, I want to give it three heads just to give you sort of an understanding of where I'm going. Uh, We need to understand two important things and they go together about men, about the hearers in Paul's day as much as the hearers today. We need to secondly understand a couple of very important truths about God. Now there are many things we can learn about God, but these two things also hang together and must be held together. And finally, we need to seek two key responses uh, to the gospel that is proclaimed. These are the gospel imperatives and these things importantly go together. Firstly, two main things about men, about ourselves, and Paul really is confronting the culture And the personal and religious idols in Athens. And this really applies to us today, for we all, dare I say it, have idols. We all are religious. Now, I don't think that's, well, I do think that's a fact that not many people recognize. I was talking to the girlfriend of one of my sons who has been raised a Catholic and is teaching in a Catholic school and uh, well-versed in some of the teachings of the Bible. And yet she proclaimed to me very clearly that she was not at all religious. And yet I'd maintain, as would Paul, I think, that she is religious. For we define, we've got to define religious as basically worshipping. Worshipping someone or something. Now some people are very religious and they'll tell you that. Other people will say, I'm not religious, like she did. But as this passage points out, they are. And still others, they don't really know. <laughs> they, may, they may say, well, when asked and, and pushed, they say, no, I'm not really religious. But in fact, they are practising some sort of worship. They are worshipping something in their hearts, in their lives, and it's very telling by their actions and even by their words. One guy said to me when I was talking to him, he was doing some work at a church, a builder, and I said, why don't you come along to our church gathering? You'd find, find out things about a bit more about us. He said, no, not for me. He said, my church is the Bunnings Warehouse. And he said, that's my religion, and you'll find me happy there and even there on Sundays, I said, "Okay," And, you know, Christians are not exempt from this. Even if we say we're very religious as we want to work at our salvation, as Paul points out, with fear and trembling. But if we drill down in our lives, if we have a look at ourselves, our thoughts and our actions, we can say something, but our actions can be very different. In reality, even in A Christian's life from time to time, idolatry pops up and must be dealt with. And that's a real problem. We can be a bit like the Athenians. And to discover what the Athenians were really in their hearts, Paul does something. He really holds up a mirror and says, look at yourselves. Look at what what is in your lives And we need to hear this too. He was speaking in the marketplace where everybody gathers, where a lot of things are transacted. He was speaking in the synagogues. And finally then he was taken to this uh, prominent place, Mars Hill, the Areopagus. And he holds up a mirror and he says, look at yourselves. And what does he say? You're very religious. Look at all the idols around. And Paul refers to the poets of the day because these, these guys were, some of them were philosophers. They just sat around all day arguing about this and that theory and that philosophy. Uh, Epimedes, Epimenides uh, was a poet from Crete and he wrote in one of his poems, in him, we live and move and we exist. We have our being. And Aratus was another Greek poet from the region of Sicilia, and he was quite uh, well known and he wrote, for we also are his offspring. Now these guys, these philosophers, the, the Epicureans who actually believed in the gods, but they were practically atheists because they said, well... You know, we've got to work out our our own lives. Let the gods work out their thing. And the Stoics, well, they weren't atheists, but um, they really advanced. They were more like pantheists. They believed in many gods, uh, as as the Romans did. And they had this idea, the Stoics, that mythical Zeus God was another name for the force that controlled the universe. You see, and Aratus uh, advanced in his opening lines of his poem uh, that the divine reason permeates every facet of human endeavour and that's why we're his offspring. That's according to the Greeks. And so Paul points out, you know, like, this is what you're saying. You've got all these idols. You're very religious. And it's true, we are his offspring that is, of the true God. And he does order things and give us many things. But here is what you have, these altars everywhere. You're very religious. And yet it's it's the wrong focus. And Paul refers to these altars he'd seen all around the place. Athens was not only a cultural centre, there's not only a, a, a philosophical place where... People learnt many things. There was like a university there, but it was also a very religious centre. In fact, there was an idol on every building and every place. They had all the gods represented in Athens. It was a place full of altars and inscriptions. One um, ancient pagan uh, writer said it's more easy to find a god in Athens than a man. Every public building uh, was dedicated to a god. And and there was just a gross manifestation of idolatry. And they even had, as Paul pointed out, altars to an unknown God. Not only was their idolatry on display, but also, in a sense, their ignorance of God as he is revealed. And that's typical of people, isn't it? What doesn't fit the current idea? Well, Hopefully we'll do something to change so that it does fit it. And if there is an unknown God, we better erect an altar there just in case uh, he gets angry with us. In fact, that's how it started, the, these altars to the unknown God. Legend has it that there was a terrible plague in the city of Athens and uh, attempts to appease the gods to stop the plague didn't, didn't uh, work so some wise man uh, had a, a flock of sheep and he took them up to the Mars Hill and he suggested that wherever the sheep would wander, when they'd stop, that's where they'd sacrifice that sheep. And then they could erect an altar there to appease the God. And so that's what happened. So wherever the sheep got tired and weary and lay down, that's where they sacrificed the sheep and erected an altar and put on it to the unknown God. And then, of course, uh, that was allegedly effective and returned the city to health. Now, if you were to think that that doesn't apply today, then you might, I might say, you're far from the truth. You know, recently the ABC uh, had a program called uh, The War on Waste. I don't know whether you, any of you watched that. Those that don't have TVs probably didn't. But nevertheless, this guy, Craig Rickastle, um, pointed out what's going on, you know, in our society. And in this, uh, I think it was the third one, he interviewed four young ladies. Now, these ladies were compulsive... Fashion buyers, they went out and bought clothes every week to keep up with the fashions. And they shopped for the fast fashion. It was quite addictive. And that's the way it's designed to be. Now, you could quote the statistics to them, but would that change them? No, it didn't. Craig Rucussle had to go back again and again and try to encourage them to give up this this sort of desire to keep buying clothes every week. The fact that every person in Australia, for every person in Australia, there's 30 kilograms of clothes that go to waste every year per person is just incredible, isn't it? But that won't change what's in their heart. And it was quite obvious to people watching. Likewise, uh, a leading American thinker, Author and university instructor by the name of David Foster Wallace. He's passed away, but in his acclaimed Kenyan uh, commencement speech back in 2005, he spoke about the mindlessness of even educated people who fail to make decisions even when there's something that's seen to be true. He said, This is our default setting, the unconscious acceptance. Uh, of going along with the crowd, as it were, and this is seen by what we worship. And what people need to do is actually to get away from that default setting, which is actually self-centeredness. Now, this guy was not a Christian, and he's saying these things. This is what's wrong with our postmodern society. It's what we hold at the centre of our hearts. It's what Paul is saying, holding up a mirror to the Athenians. You're very religious, but actually your your religiousness is not based on the truth and you can't see it. I'm just going to quote some of his speech. Uh, This is David Foster Wallace. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. Now remember, he's not a Christian. There's no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type of thing to worship is that anything else that you worship more or less eats you up alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap your real meaning into life, then you'll never have enough. You'll never feel you have enough. If you worship your body and your health and, and beauty and sexual allure, if that's your God deep down, he's saying you'll always feel ugly and when time and age start showing you'll die a million deaths before they finally grieve you on one level we all know this stuff already worship power you'll end up feeling weak and afraid and you'll never ever you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear worship your intellect to be seen to be smart and you'll end up feeling stupid a fraud and always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing, David Foster Wallace says, about all these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful. It's that they're unconscious. They are default settings. And that's what Paul is speaking to, to the Athenians. You're worshipping these idols as gods, but actually you're missing the mark He didn't say they're sinful, but they're dumb. They don't speak back. They're not actually the true God. You're to be awake to this sinfulness, as it were, and our sinful tendencies, and to worship the true God. And that's when he starts to speak about the true God, which brings me to the second point. There are two things about God we need to... Hold together. We need to keep in balance. Now, Paul said more than two things about the attributes and the character and the nature of God in his speech there to the Athenians. But there are two aspects that we can draw out. And many people focus on one and neglect the other or don't even want to go and talk about the other. But they need to be held together. The true God of heaven and earth is on the one hand, gracious and kind and loving and merciful. But on the other hand, he's also just and righteous and plays no favorites. Now people often focus on the love and the mercy. And that's true. But they also need to hold together the fact that God is just and it applies to everyone, both both sides. And we can look at it in other ways. We can say, well, God is benevolent. He pours out his blessings. He pours down the rain. He pours out the sunshine day after day, season after season, year after year. He's kind like that and generous, giving life and sustaining life. Night and day he, the, the goes on, giving us what we need so that we can enjoy life comfort and peace and happiness, our food and our clothing and provision. But equally, God is not just benevolent, he's active. He sent Jesus into the world to redeem us, to buy us back from slavery to sin in order that we may rightly worship. And he's also sending Jesus back again to judge. Now, Paul speaks... In different ways, God as the creator and the sustainer. Those things sort of hold together, if you like. Um, uh, Very important facts. But God is also the Lord and the judge. Listen to this again. I'll just read again, verse 24 through to 31. Creator, God who made the world and everything in it, Lord being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. He's Lord. He is sustaining us since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him, yet he's actually not far from each one of us. As the poet said, for in him we live and move and have our being. Even some of your own poets said, we're indeed his offspring. Being God's offspring, we ought not to think that he's like, the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by art and the imagination of man. No, this is what, where it comes in as he is judged. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man who is appointed. And this he's given assurance of all because he raised him from the dead. You see, and this message was not lost on some people there. Dionysius, the Arab Ariopi and a woman named Damaris and some others actually believed Paul and followed him, adhered to him, it says in verse 34. But It is very important that we get that balance, I believe, that God is not only gracious and loving and merciful, but God is also just. And when we look at the cross, that's what we see, isn't it? God's love poured out for us. And yet Christ taking the penalty for us. He's just and he's merciful. Now how do we learn about God in these ways and keep that balance in view? Well I tell you there's nothing better than to read your Bibles every day. Or at least listen to the word. You can get it on iPhone and listen to it uh, any time of the day. Now I know we all will struggle with that. I know because I struggle with that. And our normal worldly default is to just get on with life, get up out of bed and have breakfast and I've got things to do and places to be. But God wants us to call on him, to draw near to him. And reading the Bible is the way we learn about God. Allowing God to speak and speaking back to God in prayer. And it shouldn't take second or third place or no place. That's what the creator, the sustainer, the redeemer and the judge desires for us. And Christian or not Christian, you can't understand God unless you get to know him. And that's the way to get to know him. I recall a time many years ago when I had shifted from Melbourne and located to Devonport, Tasmania for my work because I thought that would serve the company better. And one of the office ladies uh, in the company I was employed with um, some year after I'd shifted came over to Tasmania on a holiday with a husband and I remember them coming to visit on that Saturday. And uh, we sat there and talked, but the husband was just plain rude. He did not want to acknowledge me as the owner of the place. He didn't even want to make conversation. He just wanted to be allowed to switch on the TV so he could watch the football or something like that. and Or the races, I think it was. And in fact, not only that, but he turned it up so that we could hardly talk I foolishly allowed him and he basically ignored my grace and my favour as if he owned the place, much to the disgust of his wife. And I know I can treat God like that. I can sort of accept he's there but remain distant from him, push him away. And yet he cares so much about me. He loves me. And he's shown and demonstrated that for me. So this is what I say in those times. Lord, help me to look forward to hearing from you today. To delight in your word. And then I follow a plan. I've got a three-year or a one-year plan that reads right through the Bible. And even if I miss a day or two, I will catch up. I can read sometimes or I can listen as I said to all the lessons that God would teach me from his word to see his grace and his mercy and his love and his righteousness and his justice. And that's what modifies my thinking. That's what helps me to serve him and to love him and therefore to love others as he loves us. Now as I understand God more and more, this brings me to the last and final point that we are to grasp the gospel imperatives for ourselves in our lives. We need to work them out in our lives. And that, that sometimes is a bit of a struggle for each one of us because there is an assurance that, yes, the judgment will come because Jesus was raised from the dead, And therefore, we need, as Paul says, to repent and believe. These two things need to be held together. They cannot be separated. And all the promises are there. Come to me, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you the living water. I will give you the bread of life. I am the vine. And if you abide in me, then you will have much fruit abundant fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Jesus is not only the judge who judges in righteousness, but he is also the redeemer who gives us mercy. As we sung before, he is the lion of Judah and the lamb of God. And so this is the call of Paul to the Athenians. This is the call To us today, the call of Jesus, repent and believe. The call of the apostles, it's the same. Repent and believe. Two things must be together. Death comes to all men, but it didn't come to Jesus because God raised him from the dead. And therefore there's the proof that God won't overlook the ignorance anymore and God can also deal with our sinfulness By the substitution of your sin and the giving of his righteousness. Now, some scoffed and some mocked and others wanted to hear more, and still others actually believed. This is is like the four soils, the four responses. But how does this really work out in our lives? You know, it's a difficult thing sometimes. We have to ask, what are our idols? What are the things that we default to instead of worshipping God? What sort of sin sins do they cause us uh, to do? Well, let me give you an example. The gospel is the way, is the answer to stop lying. Now, that's an obvious sin. If someone lies, uh, we say that's a lie. That's not true. But the less obvious sin behind the sin is that we're worshipping something that is not God or someone that is not God, our idol. The gospel is a way to stop lying. And the reason, we've got to ask this question, why am I lying in this particular situation? The reason we lie, because at that moment, there is something we feel that we need, we must have, something that we must have. But the typical reason why we lie is because we are deeply fearful of losing some approval or some acceptance by someone else. And that means that the sin under the sin is, is, yes, breaking the command, we shall not, bear false witness, but we're also breaking the first commandment. You shall have no other gods but God, the Lord God. And so if we're looking more to human approval than to Jesus as our source of worth and meaning and happiness, we're prone to have that idol in our heart. And under the sin of lying is a kind of heart unbelief in the gospel, whatever we tell ourselves intellectually. And anything you add to Jesus is really a functional salvation, a pseudo-saviour. It's controlling you, like those ladies on that war on waste. They just wanted to keep going and buying more clothes. It was impulsive. And the only way to change a habit like that is to repent of that, is to say, I'm going to turn away from that and put your love in the Lord Jesus Christ. Recognise his grace towards you and accept him as your master, not those other things. And so here it is all in summary. Understand our condition. As God's offspring, we want to serve the Lord. We want to serve the true God. And we must recognise that in, that in our default setting, we will want to serve ourselves. We will want to serve our pleasure or our control or our power or, or approval as the gods within our heart. But as we continue to focus on God, as we learn from him through the scriptures, through the encouragement he gives us, we learn that he's both gracious and just And that's found in the gospel and Jesus, as we can continue to repent and believe in him, that we may receive grace upon grace, mercy and and abundant grace. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Paul's uh, speech before the Athenians and how it speaks to us. And how often we're so prone to wander away, as the hymn writer said, But we pray that you continue to bring us back and remind us of the great love you have for us and what you have in store for us is much more than we can imagine or or even understand. And so, Lord, help us to strive, to draw near to you, to follow you wholeheartedly. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, is there another... One more song, yep. Would you like to stand again? Mm -hmm. We're going to sing the Lion and the Lamb.